Welcome to All the Social Ladies, a podcast bringing you candid conversations with the boldest women in digital marketing. I'm Carrie Kirpin, CEO of Likeable Media, and let's get into the show. Today's a really special day because I get to interview Ruthann Harnish, who's the founder and president of the Harnish Foundation. She describes herself as an investor, a donor, a producer, a writer, a performer, and a formerly poor, now rich person working to create social change and help others find their own paths to fulfillment. I was so excited to talk to Ruthann. I know her well, and just listening to her stories and some of her thoughts around social media were really enlightening. Take a listen. Welcome, Ruthann, to the show. Hi, I'm so delighted to be with you. I am so excited to have you on the show today. And, you know, I know a ton about your career as I've gotten to know you over time, but I'm really interested in learning which three moments you feel really helped define your career and bring you to where you are today. Well, I thought that I would share, because I am old, therefore I have had so many career-defining <laughs> moments, but, but I thought I would share the ones that might be of most use to others. And the first was when I was a consumer reporter at the CBS television affiliate in Nashville, Tennessee. It was a part-time position. It was... Do you know what an affirmative action hire is? Someone who has been pretty much foisted upon an employer to comply with equal opportunity hiring rules. And I was an affirmative action hire because there were no women on the local newscasts. And I was put in a very traditional female role. I was the consumer reporter. And, (laughs) And one day... I realized I'm paid so little that I qualify for what was then called food stamps. I don't know what they call it today. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to do a story on applying for food stamps. I better warn my general manager. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Whereupon I got a raise to $1 more (laughs) than could qualify me for food stamps. But it was the first time in my career I had ever tried to use leverage to get a raise, to say, I know that this is going to be very embarrassing to you if I do this story. And it's a true story. And I'm a journalist. (laughs) So what are we going to do about this? I looked at my leverage and I went to the decision maker. And the decision maker taught me to, <laughs> that I should have told him exactly what I wanted, not a dollar more <laughs> than, wow. than would qualify me for the assistance. But that was the first when I spoke up for myself. The second, this is tough. It's about being a leader, a manager, and all that that entails. I was going to be moved out of my job as a television news anchor. I was a weekday, it was the highest prestige anchor job one could have, and I had it. And I was about to be moved into 
a newly created position. This was when our former co-worker, Oprah Winfrey, went off and showed <laughs> what could be done in the afternoon with the talk show. And the television station thought I should do that on a local level. And were, they were moving me off the news to create this talk show. One of my best friends, a former co-anchor, had been promoted to be assistant news director. And when the general manager took me out to a public place, as they do when they don't want you to argue, get hysterical, or not right. behave politely, the thing that killed me in that moment of being told, you have no choice in your future, we are telling it to you, my friend must have known uh, must have known for months. I mean, you don't just pop a television news anchor of long standing off the news and create a talk show without a whole lot of discussion about that person and their future and their money. And I knew in that moment my friend had never, ever, ever given me a hint of a heads up. And I also knew that's the price of becoming a manager. Wow. If you're going to be a manager, you are going to risk that your friends are going to hate you mm. and will become your former friends. If you were in that position, would you have done the same, not given them a heads up? Had to. Had to. Because it's Whose leadership. Whose money are you taking? Right. Right. Whose wow. loyalty do you have? This is management because they knew me very well. He knew me better than even upper management knew me. Right. He knew what I would do. Right. <laughs> he, right. Knew, he knew I would have been incredibly proactive about my own career, and they could not afford for me to be proactive. They had, mm. had to control me, and he had to be part of it. That's a great lesson. Okay. And the third one was when I lost my last paying job in journalism. I was a columnist for the Nashville Banner, a paper that had been around for well over a hundred years. It was purchased by Gannett and closed so mm -hmm. that their morning paper could have exclusive coverage in the Nashville area. I was so sad to have literally been out of work in the things that I used to do. And I was not going to go to the at-home dinner of professional women that I had been scheduled to go on the day I learned I was disemployed for the first mm. time, probably since I was 15. And I said, no, I'm going to go. And the hallmark of these things is a round table at which everybody has one, it's a one conversation and it mm -hmm. starts with, who are you? What do you do? Type of thing. And when it got to me, I said, when I joined this organization, I would have said, I am a television news anchor, a radio talk show host, a newspaper columnist who writes op-ed and feature. I'm an adjunct professor at a university in a graduate business school, and I would have gone, I, but I'm today I'm none of those things, mm. and I don't know what to tell you about who I am. And 
a woman in the organization, Dr. Ruth Cowan, was at the dinner that day, and she said, well, of course you will become a philanthropist now. And I turned to her, and I said, of course I will become a philanthropist now. <laughs> oh, I love and that. And I did. Yep. I started the Harnish Foundation. It had as much to give away as I earned as a television news anchor. It was $50,000 a year. I was amazed that I could give it away. And now I've given away well over $10 million in the course of the foundation. And I unearthed in cleaning my office a letter from Dr. Ruth Cowan kind of sealing that deal. It's so prescient. I sent a copy to the executive director of the Harnish Foundation, Jenny Raymond, and we both marveled at how that woman guided my destiny in that moment. Sometimes it's like people can see things in you that you can't see in the moment, like you're just so in it that you don't see it. And she's so clearly like, it seems like she really lit that up for you. That's, that's an incredible story. Well, you know, I had a weird idea of what a philanthropist was. Mm-hmm. I'd been a journalist covering great gifts in philanthropy, as well as lots of little volunteer efforts. And I'd raised tens of millions as a telethon host for muscular yes. dystrophy, as a public TV fundraiser. I, I just thought it took way more than I had available if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, I thought it required more education about how to give money away wisely. I didn't realize philanthropy is everybody who's giving everything at every level. Mm. If you let them round up at the cash register for the cause they're raising for, you are a philanthropist. Yes. If you are volunteering or giving of your time or your talent or even your good thoughts about something in any way, you are a philanthropist. I didn't embrace it and I didn't know it and I didn't recognize how much financial power I had in every decision I was making. Wonderful. Wonderful. I I love that. I I like the reframing of what philanthropy actually is and how we all can participate in that. It's really beautiful. My question for you, my next question is around social media. I know it's viewed as this kind of great democratizer of communication that gives everyone a voice. How are you seeing women and other underrepresented groups use these tools to their advantage, whether it's through building a business or starting a movement or philanthropy? Give me some insight into what you've seen over the years of great change with social media. Wow, I know we have limited time. I could I could do this <laughs> all day. We could talk <laughs> really so much. I, I when when you first spoke the words, I thought of so many businesses that have started because social exists. Yes. There's one called Girls' Night Out, for example, that just started as a side hustle of somebody who said, you know, everybody's out all the time. I'm more comfortable staying in. And it turned out she was not only not the only one, there were so many so fast that it became her business. And she quit whatever it was she was doing for money and now runs Girls' Night Out as a business. It's amazing. 
There are so many beautiful stories like that. There are so many beautiful stories of of businesses that were started and all of these great things. But I I know also there's a lot of downside. I know you just recently executive produced Netizens, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I still get the creeps every time I think Uh, of that movie. uh, Everybody should watch this. It really, it exposes the proliferation of cyber harassment faced by women. Talk to me a little bit about this and and what responsibilities do you think that the platforms have in this and really helping to avoid this type of abuse? You know, I think it's all on them. I totally, Jack Dorsey, Sheryl Sandberg, Mark Zuckerberg, where are you in this? This is totally preventable. This is totally preventable. And they choose not to. They choose to hide from it and pretend that it is not the problem that it is. On this date, I am signed up tomorrow to attend a webinar that's on, quote, technology facilitated gender based violence disrupting its impact on our public and private lives. And this is put on by the International Council of Research on Women. And they're going to there's going to be a panel of people talking about this. And how many panels are we all going to listen to? And I don't know how. We somehow hold Mark and Jack totally accountable for this. Yeah. They could stop it if they wanted. It makes me feel also that even though all the rules say the first in is always the winner because yeah. they claim all the territory... I have to believe that there is endless opportunity for an enterprise that connects us in peace and safety. Yes. Where, what where one can dream for sure. I, it's, I, it's really, I do dream it. I do dream I it. But, but, you know, I look at people who are reinventing the use of the medium for themselves. I look at somebody yes. like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, yes. and see what she's doing. Yes. Here is somebody who's not even 30 years old. And that, of course, is part of the key. She's not even 30 years old. She is a digital native. She knows how to use these platforms and has in less than two years achieved what people are saying in the press today is equal social media power with the person who is described as the most powerful individual (laughs) in the world. Yes. she. I do think that being a digital native does really help. The 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 more intuitive it is to you as someone who is born into this, the better you can use it for good. And I, I, I one thing I feel a lot of times, like when I look at Alexandra or I look at the Parkland kids or I look at anyone, it does give me hope that there are people who can use these mediums for good. I do just wish there were a way that we could better police the bad. It's just, it's really... It's really awful. awful, Do you you agree that it's doable? I think it's challenging. I think that if they took the the one thing that they need to do immediately is take the reporting more seriously. Like when I see a woman on Twitter say, I've reported this person 10 times and they're still here. Their account is still here. To me, that is a 
misuse of the platform and it falls entirely on the networks. And what happens is much like your first story about leverage, if, if something becomes big, right? If Milo gets a big book deal and all of a sudden he's a public figure, then all of a sudden they're suspending his account. However, it's all of the smaller people that are doing this level of abuse where it's not being handled. And that's what I don't understand. I, I understand that they can't proactively interpret speech for everybody. However, when somebody reports that they're being abused, if you can't react to that, then we have a real problem. We have a real problem. And that's where I think the failure, I mean, things should automatically be suspended when you report, no matter what, even until it's evaluated. I just think, what's the point of having a report feature? I want to. I'm going to go back to my film producing. I was an executive producer of the documentary "The Hunting Ground," yes, which exposed institutional difficulties with campus sexual assault. And yes. in appearing on behalf of that motion picture at the Sundance Film Festival, in being identified as a producer of it, my social accounts immediately became filled with. Filthy pictures. Yes. <laughs> I, yes. I'm an open-minded person. I am yes. a trained sex coach. I have seen yep. a lot of things. I would not invite these images. They were images, yep. and they yep. were many times using public people, and sometimes my face, <laughs> uh. altered images. I reported every one of them, but I had to block them myself. You yes, know? you have to block them versus you can block them yourself and you can mute them. But the reality is they're just going to go do it to someone else. And so that's where the responsibility falls onto the networks. It's really, it's horrible. And I, I, for myself, I know when my daughter, my oldest daughter became more active as she became an activist, she was subjected to a lot more, uh, you know, of, of every inappropriate thing under the sun. And it was really pretty terrifying. I mean, she was 14 years old at the time. And so it was, uh, that's how it old I really was scary. when I had my first obscene phone call. Yeah. Okay. Crazy. And that's what the technology was in 1964, which is when I was 14. So the technology when I was at the beginning of my public career was the anonymous filthy letter. <laughs> yeah. Threatening letter. Uh, abusive letter and yeah. the and the anonymous because there wasn't caller ID back then the anonymous threatening phone call that would often come to your house in the middle of the night except now it's public and it's shareable and it's 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 echoable like mm. that phone call that came into your house can't be echoed by thousands of trolls like it's it's just to me I don't believe that there was was true ill intent when these networks were built, and I believe that they do a lot of good. But I believe, like you, that it is the responsibility of the leaders to come up with mechanisms for stopping this. It's it's so out of hand. I'm going to move to some of the good that I think it does. Give me for, more good. Yes, let's let's have the, it on a good note for the work that I do. I don't have any other way of telling yep. people what the Harnish Foundation is funding and why we think you'd be interested. We have a program called Awesome Without Borders. We're one of the dozens of chapters of the Awesome Foundation, which is philanthropy on a very human and accessible scale where People do not go through government entities and make it tax deductible. People just get together every month and throw a 100 bucks in the pot and the 10 trustees 
for $1,000 fund something awesome. Wow. Our chapter does it every week instead of every month, and the money comes out of my pocket instead instead of 10 other people's pockets. Right. But, but every week, we forward something awesome, and we put it on Instagram, we put it on Facebook, we put it on Twitter. We are awesome without borders, and that's how we find friends for our grantees. The Harnish Foundation is on all those platforms. I'm personally more comfortable on Twitter and Facebook than I am on the gram. I am not I am not there. <laughs> that is that is not You would be great on the gram though. Well you would be. You know your fashion alone. <laughs> all of it. You know, in it. a way, that's a thing I don't do. I yeah. call attention to the fact that I am a privileged white cis woman, as uh, Mr. Starbucks would have us say, person of yes. means. I'm a rich yes. woman. Yes. <laughs> I, yes. A rich white woman. I, I own that that is privilege, but I try yes. really hard not to put it in people's faces Faith. in a way designed to generate envy, hostility. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. I it's just not nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get that. And Instagram is a space where it is all about the showiness. And even if you don't have it, acting as if you do, you know, showing showing the very best of yourself. So you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I do see women who do it well in a way that is not pretentious and very, very authentic. But I do understand what you're saying. And I also think, though, recognizing your own privilege, just the ability to not have the fragility, right? And to say, you know, I recognize this privilege and, and where I am is such an important part of the conversation. I think so many of us don't say that and don't allow ourselves, you know, say, what do you mean? Oh, you know, no, it's the same for everyone. And I think when you truly recognize your own privilege and your openness to understanding that you're a part of that it's an important part of the conversation. Hey, I have been on the other side of almost everything I'm on the good side of. Yep. So I I am grateful every moment of every day that I am conscious of how far I have come from not being able to afford Q-tips and trying to make the toothpaste last. And I want to talk about those people who think it's important to show status symbols or a lifestyle on social media. It's proven to cause depression, if not in you, in yes. others. Yes. It, let's, yes. Let's try really hard to look at what's vital and important in life. And it seldom is a show of material goods or yes. an effort to distance oneself from others with how much prettier, how much glossier, how much more logo-laden we can be. I find that when I was a young person, I aspired to these things I could not have. And yes. now, now that I can have almost anything I might want in terms of the things I used to envy, all I can see is what a distance it causes between me and anyone who doesn't have that. And I don't like that. And I'm not mm. comfortable in it. And I am not trying to disown my privilege. Here you are. Yep. I am saying that it is not worth 
putting the compressed carbon jewel on my hand to wave in front of someone for any reason. It just feels unkind and unfair in this world. And I used to be hypnotized by the consumer goods as much as anybody in the world. But once I had the opportunity, I recognized that's not where my aspirations are. And if I have any extra, I, I, really, I really have more fun leveling the playing field because it's not as much fun for me in a bifurcated world. I can see that's where so much of the trouble starts. I was a resentful person when I was a have-not. I would have been a revolutionary. I knew, I, I, I really, I really think that the world will work better if there's just not as much of a split between income groups and privilege yeah. groups. The fairer yeah. it is, the happier we all will be. Wouldn't it be a wonderful world if on social media, instead of all showing off the best of ourselves, we used it as a platform to highlight others like you're doing with the something awesome stuff. Talking about and lifting up others, I think is such a good, important way that we can use social media for good. I I love to share stories of women who are succeeding as entrepreneurs, who are putting themselves out there, who are doing all those things. That's actually why I originally started the podcast was I felt like there were women who were so uncomfortable talking about themselves. And so I could help by helping share their story. Well, people I think you know in the real world include Susan McPherson, who is a tireless promoter of the causes of other people, individuals as well as their not-for-profits and their for-profit businesses. Lindsay Taylor Wood and The Helm promoting female founders and some of those in in which her company invests, but in general, the landscape of women entrepreneurs and all the support and promotion they need. Cindy Gallup, who is forever promoting gender, racial, whatever kind of equality doesn't exist, she's promoting it, but she really believes that we are leaving so much on the table when we don't take advantage of the talents and voices of those who are not represented at the table, most especially in advertising and other media. We could go on with all the people who are using social media in the way you just described. Aminatuso and Anne Friedman, the co-hosts of Call Your Girlfriend. Call Your Girlfriend, the best. Creators of Shine Theory. If I don't shine, you don't shine. If you don't shine, I don't shine. I'm shining a light on you. That helps me shine too. I love it. Ruthann, thank you so much for being on the show today. You are a fabulous lady, both in a social lady and beyond. Normally I am with your fabulous social lady, but you transcend social. You are just fabulous in all ways. Thank you so much for lifting up other women. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for all of it. Uh, right back at you. That could be a mirror. Oh, thank you, darling. That was all the social ladies. Don't miss new episodes every week. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you like what you heard, please rate and review the show. I'm Carrie Kirpin, CEO of Likeable Media and author of Work It, Secrets for Success from the Boldest Women in Business. Follow me, at Carrie Kirpin, everywhere. And for more social smarts, be sure to follow Likeable, at Likeable Media. Thanks for listening. 